please. I did just want to emphasize one thing about our small groups that are coming up. Um, and that is, Vance made a mention to this, and I thought, well, we should make sure everyone's on the same page. We have several new folks. Uh, when we do small group Sundays, we don't meet here on those Sunday nights. So since small groups are beginning next Sunday, that means Sunday night at 5 p.m. there will not be anything here. Now you may be thinking, I'd like to be a part of a small group, but I don't really know anyone. Here's the secret. The way you're going to get to know people is by being a part of a small group. Uh, so I know that it's, it's challenging if, if there's not folks that you know, but I just want to encourage you uh, to take some time this morning after we finish up on the back table um, to, to get your name on a small group, um, to try that out, to be a part of a, a group, and it'll be a great opportunity to get to know some different people in the church. Uh, when I was in high school, I went to a private Christian high school, and so we would have chapel every day, and we would have announcements every day. And most of the announcements would start in a similar way as this. The following announcement is for all our graduating seniors, or for the women who are traveling to tonight's volleyball game, or for those who are required to be at study hall tonight. And everyone who was listening would know based on the first opening statement whether there was any point of them paying attention to those announcements. And being a young teenage boy, I often found that there was better things for me to do with my mental energy than to listen to these announcements. And so I often zoned out. And I still use those skills today of being able to decide whether this is for me or not every time I check the mail. Even though we've been at our home for several years, I will still get mail to somebody whose name is on that envelope who doesn't live in our household. And I know this is not for me, and I put it back out there. See, when we read Romans, one of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves is, to whom is it addressed? Paul's going to begin in his introduction, Romans 1, 1 through 15, and he's going to be telling them a lot about what he plans to do when he arrives in Rome. His plans can be summarized by Romans 1, 15. He speaks of his eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you who are in Rome. And so Paul wants to travel there in order to proclaim the gospel. And the question is, if you are the person who is organizing Paul's visit, and he says he's coming to proclaim the gospel, who do you invite to that event? Is proclaiming the gospel something that is for non-Christians? Or is proclaiming the gospel for Christians? Or is proclaiming the gospel for both? And I think that you'll find as you read what different people have to say about this text, there's these two very different camps about who they believe Paul is intending when he speaks of proclaiming the gospel. And so I want to look at three statements in Romans 1, 1 through 15, and talk about these two different groupings and ask which one is more uh, helpful in terms of reading Romans. So the first group says, proclaiming the gospel is something that you do either primarily or exclusively to or for non-Christians. And so proclaiming the gospel, if you're hosting that event, you're going to go out and you're going to find some people who are not yet Christians. You're going to say, hey, Paul's proclaiming the gospel. You guys need to come and you need to listen and be a part of that. And if you were a Christian who happened to be there that Sunday morning when Paul said, I'm going to proclaim the gospel, you can just zone out. Because you can say, this is something I have already heard. This is something I already know. So these people think, Paul wants to go to Rome. So he can stand on a street corner 
and he can proclaim the gospel to those who are not yet Christian because proclaiming the gospel is something that you do to non-Christians. And the second group of people, as they read Romans 1, they will say proclaiming the gospel is something that you do to both a Christian and a non-Christian audience. If you have a non-Christian, you will focus on an initial response to the gospel. But anyone, no matter if they've been Christians for five years or 50 years, they still need to be obedient to the calling of the gospel. So in this way, if you're organizing Paul's visit and you say Paul's going to proclaim the gospel, you're going to invite, whether you're Christian or whether you're not Christian, Paul will have a message for you in the act of proclaiming the gospel. And so there's a couple of passages that help people decide which of these two groupings they find themselves with. And one of those is Romans 1.13, where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. So what group one says is they say, see, doesn't it make it clear? Paul wants to do what? He wants to reap a harvest. And how is Paul going to reap a harvest? He's going to go to these non-Christians. When they hear the message, when they respond, when they are baptized, Paul's going to say, I've been successful. I've reaped a harvest. But the people in group two will say, when Paul spends time with these Roman Christians... And their conduct is transformed by their understanding of the ways that the gospel impacts their relationships. That Paul will then say, I have accomplished the goal of having a harvest among you. The other verse that people will look at is Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, where it speaks of saying, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for the sake of his name including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's group one going to say of this passage? They are going to say bringing about the obedience of faith is this act of initial conversion that is the non-Christians who need to be obedient to the faith. But the second group will say that when people begin to act and live as they should according to the gospel, that that is the act of bringing about the obedience of the faith. And this concept of bringing about the obedience of the faith is actually kind of a summary of Paul's whole purpose. If you're to boil Romans down to a single statement, it is to bring obedience of the faith. He's going to mention it again at the very end of his gospel. He's going to say in 1626, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. Paul says, at the start of the letter, this is what we're doing. At the end of the letters, this is what we're doing. The obedience of faith is important to Paul. But these two different ways of reading Romans is actually impacted by the two different understandings people have about the Apostle Paul, about his ministry, about his mission, about his purpose, about his calling. And so I want us to back up out of Romans for a minute, and we're going to come back, and we're going to just simply ask the question, was Paul a pioneering missionary who determined missionary success exclusively on the conversion of non-Christians. So as a pioneer missionary, Paul would seek to preach the gospel where there were people who had not yet heard that story. His goal would get people to hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And once that goal was completed, Paul could then move on to a completely new place. So his success is seen in the sum total of his 
conversions. One writer, John Knox, says this of Paul, It is clear that his pastoral and administrative work irked him and that he wanted to be free of it. So anytime Paul was forced to deal with people who are already Christians, it irked him because he had something more important to be doing. And those who see Paul's pastoral pioneering ministry in this way, they would look at Romans 18, 15, 18 through 20, where Paul writes, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. And that phrase by now maybe should sound a little bit familiar to you. It's very similar to the obedience of the faith. But he wants to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the good news of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to proclaim the good news, not where Christ has already been named, so that I will not build on anyone's perspective. So from this pioneer missionary perspective, a person would say Paul's job as an evangelist is to take the gospel to places where it has not been heard. And there have been times that Paul was sucked into the vortex of pastoral ministry, but every time that happened, he wanted to minimize those distractions to his primary calling. Anytime he had to work with somebody who was already a Christian, he viewed that as a subtraction, a taking away of what God called him to do. And so now that he has fully proclaimed the gospel in these regions from Jerusalem to Lycrium, which he's not saying I've converted everyone, he's saying everybody's heard the name Jesus, he's saying now I'm going to move on to a new place. And so is that how Paul presents his work? Is it true that it always irked him when he had to work with those who were Christians? Did each time he work with Christians, was that a pulling away from his primary calling? And so we're going to review this perspective uh, using three questions that Paul Bowers presents. He says, look at Paul's practice, then look at Paul's priorities, then look at Paul's description of his assignment. And after you've done that, you can decide what kind of a missionary Paul thought of himself as. I'm going to suggest that instead of Paul being a pioneering missionary who determined success exclusively on the basis of the conversion of non-Christians, that Paul was a pioneering pastoral missionary who longed not simply for the conversion of non-Christians, but he attached great importance to the ongoing transformation in the lives of followers of Christ. So let's look first at Paul's practice. What did Paul actually do? We just shared already that he says, um, I want to go on uh, to new works. And so in Romans 15, 23 and 24, Paul says that he intends to go on to Spain. But then the very next thing he says in 15.25 is this, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem in a ministry to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to share their resources with the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Paul now is saying, I have two choices in front of me. One is to go to Spain, a brand new missionary work. The other is to go to the Bible Belt of the first century to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I plan to go where next? He says, I plan to go to Jerusalem next. Paul realized that the ongoing work of this, the greatest division in the New Testament church was Jews and Gentiles and their relationships. And he realized this gift that the Gentiles have collected for the Jewish people, that if he takes that to, to Jerusalem, that that's going to go a long way in bringing peaceable relationships. And that's what Paul's desiring. 
It's peace between Jews and Gentiles. And so instead of going to a new missionary work right now, he says, in fact, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where there's already an existing church. Then I'm going to go to Rome where there's already an existing church. And then at that point, he's going to head on to a new missionary work. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12 says, You are witnesses and God also. How pure, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. See where Paul invests his energy and his time and his effort? He wants those who are already Christians to ensure that they are leading a life worthy of the calling. And he's been concerned because he had to leave Thessalonica before he was ready to, and he is concerned for the sake of those who have already been converted. Think about Paul's practice. Does he attend to the needs of Christians? In fact, every single one of these letters that we have in the New Testament, guess who they're addressed to? They're addressed to churches, existing Christians, because Paul sees value in making sure those who, who profess the gospel live in a life that is worthy of the calling. Well, what about Paul's priorities? When given a chance to focus on new converts, did he always prioritize that over preaching to non-Christians? Martin Green says of Paul, Paul is always pressing on to find new fields to conquer, leaving new converts to fend for themselves after the minimum of instruction. And here's what he writes to the church in Thessalonica. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you, in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face. We wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Does this sound like a person who is glad to be free of these already existing Christians so he can get on to a new work where his important focus is? Or does it sound like he sees value in strengthening and encouraging and building up those who are already Christian? In fact, when Paul could not go, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 says, Paul says, we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker, for God in doing what? In proclaiming the gospel to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith. In the context of 1 Thessalonians, the proclaiming the gospel is for the sake of those who are already Christian. So, question number three, how did Paul describe his assignment? And that brings us back to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Paul, when he begins his letter, he realizes people are going to open this letter from Paul and say, why should we listen to this guy? Paul did not plant the church in Rome. Paul has never been to Rome. And now he's about to tell the Romans how they should live their lives. And their question is going to be, who are you to tell us? And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul will introduce who he is. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. He is called to be an apostle. And he is set apart for the gospel. And so after introducing himself in verses 2 through 4, Paul will introduce the gospel. He will highlight certain key aspects of the gospel that he is bringing to them. And then in verses 5 through 6, Paul's going to introduce his apostolic assignment. He's going to tell them his task. And then he's going to go on in verse 7 and following, he's going to talk about here's the purpose of what I'm trying to accomplish when I come to Rome. So let's look at these verses carefully. Romans 1, 5 through 6. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So he says, I'm apostle, I'm an apostle, but to do what? He says, to bring about the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul, who are you to tell us what to do? Paul will say, I have been called by God to do ministry to all the Gentiles. All the Gentiles includes, guess what? You Gentiles who are in Rome. You fall under my apostolic commissioning and calling. And so Paul then says, I'm going to come, and in my effort and in my ministry, I am going to speak to you of the obedience of the faith. But are these Christians or non-Christians that Paul is addressing? Paul will describe those he's addressing as those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul wants to bring about the obedience of the faith among those who are already Christian. These are people who have confessed the lordship of Jesus Christ, but in their actions and in their behavior, it is clear they are not yet fully obedient to the faith which they confess and the faith that they profess. And so Paul is not speaking of an initial conversion, but his reference is to some type of ongoing post-Christian transformation that he wants to see that taking place in the lives of of the Romans. And that's what Paul would say is then producing fruit. 1.13, he wants a harvest or fruit to come from his work in Rome. Now, I'm going to give you homework because I don't have the time to do all this, but if you have a concordance and maybe you could even Google it, you can Google in the New Testament the word fruit. And you will find that by far the vast majority of the time it is talking about lives that are changed and transformed, not talking about people who have just converted to Christ. One example of the many that kind of, I guess, typifies the way fruit is used in the New Testament is Matthew 3.8, where John the Baptist speaks of bearing fruit worthy of repentance. If you have repented, there will be a certain kind of a fruit that will come out of that repentance. And so Paul is saying, you are, are, are people who have followed the gospel, and yet there's some things clearly in your conduct and behavior that you, you're not obedient to the gospel, so I'm going to come, and when you start living the way you're living, that's going to be a harvest that we will receive on behalf of the gospel. So that leads us to Romans 1.15. Paul's eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And once again, the you also must be the Christians who are there. Now, the question you've been asking this whole entire time is, so what? Why does any of that matter? It matters because sometimes when a person like Paul or a preacher says something about the obedience to the gospel, there is a very distinct sense that this is a word and a message for them. It's like the boy who hears for all the girls on the volleyball team and say, well, nothing here for me. So what Paul is going to do in the first 11 chapters of Roman, his letter to the Romans, he's going to lay out exactly how he understands the gospel. And it's not just this, this, I want you to understand the gospel. He says, if you understand the gospel, starting in verse 12, you're going to understand how you're, in, in, how you're asked to live in a different way of life. So this is what Paul very often does. He asks people to behave in a way that is consistent with how he understands the gospel and what Christ Jesus has done. Paul's going to do it in, in 2, Corinthians, or, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he's trying to encourage the, the church in Corinth to give. Guess what he's going to point to as a motivation for their giving? He's going to point to Christ, who yet for your sakes he became, he became poor so that you might be rich. 
And so he's going to say, here is the gospel, and the gospel has obedience to which it is calling from your life. And so when he writes to address, hey, we need to raise some funds for the people in Jerusalem, he starts with the gospel, and then the calling of the response to the gospel. He'll do the same thing in the church in Philippi. When he writes them, there is arguing and strife going on, and Paul's going to say that each one needs to look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he's going to say what? Your attitude should be the same as whose attitude? Christ Jesus. And he will say what Christ did and how he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And to say the gospel then leads to the kind of a lifestyle we ought to be having in the midst of these situations. When Paul presents the gospel, he is not saying, if you are already baptized, you don't need this message. Paul's not going to say, for for, for those who are already converted, then you can zone out here because you've already responded. He's saying that the ongoing response to the gospel is required. See, for Paul, the gospel is like soil in a garden. And Paul is saying, if the plant is not growing the way that it is that, that, that it should be growing, Paul's going to go back to the soil and say, let's talk about the soil this is planted in. And he believes that if our lives are planted in the gospel, it will produce the kinds of fruit of the very sorts of things that Scott read about in Romans 12, about how we act and interact and how we love and how we serve. All of that comes if the gospel soil is right. And so Paul's going to begin with the gospel soil because he believes it's going to produce the kind of fruit in the lives of people that we need. See, I hope that you realize as we begin to get into the book of Romans, that if you are sitting in a chair in this congregation, Romans has a word and a message and a calling for you. It's not a calling for some of them, from someone out there, but it's a word and a calling for each and every one of us. And maybe the best way to illustrate this is by a a, a quick review of how the word hearing is used in the Bible. Because it's used in very different senses of, in terms of what it means to have heard God. So one of the ways you can, the word hearing can be used in the Bible is the identifying of a sound. Uh, Adam was in the garden and he heard the Lord God and he went and he hit. Hearing can simply, sometimes simply be a sound that you identify. But hearing can sometimes be understanding something. Paul, when he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, hey, hey, let's cut out this whole speaking in tongues thing. He says, because nobody can hear you. And what he's meaning is nobody can understand what you're saying. So hearing sometimes involves understanding something. Hearing can involve recognizing something. Jesus will say, the sheep do what? They hear my voice. Well, truth is, all the sheep hear the voice, but some of them actually recognize the voice. Hearing can be an affirmative hearing in the sense of agreeing with, in in the sense of believing what is said. So Abraham and Ephron are negotiating the price of a land, and once Abraham agrees with the price of the land, Abraham says, I hear you, which is saying, I agree, consent, we're on the same page. And then there's a form of hearing which is to obey. In Leviticus 26.14 it says, But if you will not obey me, and the word there is actually hear, if you do not hear me, And do not observe all these commands. What is the proof that you have not heard in that text? You're not obeying. And so hearing is obeying. So the question becomes as we get into the book of Romans, as we go through this new series, who needs to hear the gospel? And I would say every single one of us needs to hear it. We may just need to hear it in different ways. For some of you, you need to hear the gospel in the sense of understanding it. 
Some of you might say, I have no idea why a man would go to a cross and how that has anything to do with my sins. My prayer is that your ears will be open to hear the gospel so that you can understand why that happened. For some of you, you need to hear in the sense of affirming. I know what Jesus said he did. And I know what God said why he did it. But I'm ready to believe that that happened. And that's hearing in terms of affirming. And some of us need to hear in the sense of obeying. Oh, I've heard this gospel story told over and over again. And yet I realize now in my way of living there is some inconsistency. And so I want to be obedient to the gospel that I have been called. And so my prayer is simply as we go into in future sermons into the book of Romans, that we will all go in with ears that are open, with minds that are open, and with hearts that are open. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we know we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond to this sermon in any way, you want somebody to pray with you, you want somebody to talk with you, you want to understand hearing the gospel in any sort of a way, just invite you to come into the back while we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.